0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 12, the story of Mary washing Jesus' feet with her hair. We see in that story that Jesus is already thinking about His death and his burial, it's weighing on his mind. He mentions it in that story about his day of burial. It makes sense that if you knew you were going to die in just a few days, what would your mindset be? If you knew that in a week you were going to die, and you're going to die a very brutal, horrific death, what would your frame of mind be one i think it would be sober you'd have a very sober mind and it would be weighing on your mind jesus is no different doesn't matter that he knows that he is going to live again he knows he's going to die and he knows the manner of death this is not lethal injection This is something it's it's a horrific way to die and so it's on his mind and now and later in John 12 they're in the feast of the Passover and this feast draws people from all over the Roman Empire the Bible says there were Greeks there they probably were not converts to Judaism they were a group that's known as God fearers that's the title that was assigned to these people they were people who were attracted to Judaism They liked the morality of Judaism. They liked the monotheism, the belief in one God of Judaism, but they weren't converts. And this is probably who these Greeks were. And so Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, there's some Greeks who would like to meet you. And Jesus's answer is a declaration. He actually does not answer them directly to that. Uh, But his answer is the time has now come for the son of man to be glorified now in this society that they live in it's a large largely agrarian culture meaning they're farmers they grow crops this is a large part of what they do it's a large part of what all people did until just the last few decades so people understood farming and so jesus uses this farming analogy to explain what is going to happen he uses a word picture that says unless the the seed falling into the ground and it dies being covered with dirt. So it's an image of burial, that seed going under the soil, buried and then bringing forth a harvest. Now we know the seed doesn't actually die today, but these people, it lies dormant, it breaks forth. But those people were not biologists. They don't know exactly what's happening under the ground. So the word picture that Jesus gives works. He's trying to give an image of the seed going under the soil being buried, this is what must happen first. The Apostle Paul will use this analogy in 1 Corinthians 15 when he asks the question, how are the dead raised at the resurrection? Which is a fair question. The body goes into the ground and immediately begins to decay. How is that body then raised again at the resurrection? What kind of body will they have? Because there is coming a day, In the future, Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. And when He does, we are going to be with Him forever. He's going to come again, the second coming. He's going to set up shop on the earth to finish what He started. And when He returns, the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's going to be a future resurrection of the dead. This is in Judaism. It is a core belief of Christianity. If you die in faith in Christ, you will one day live again physically. What kind of body will they have? Paul asks this question in 1 Corinthians 15. And he answers, you fool. This is what he says, you foolish person, don't you know? Like, do you not understand what is going on here? That what is sown does not come to life unless it first dies. Paul says this in Corinthians. In other words, the way that you get the glorified body, a body that the Bible says is going to be like unto Christ's glorified body is you must first die so those who die in faith get this when Jesus comes back when he returns those who are not dead will be transformed Paul says in the moment in the twinkling of an eye that what happens that fast is the transformation you're going to be given that body if you're alive you will receive that resurrected body without first dying but for all those who die first that acts as a seed so there is a a principle here death must happen first before there is a resurrection before there is a harvest if you want bounty you must first plant the seed and the seed must go under the soil. I think I told it here one time, but when we lived in Illinois and I had this large patch out front that didn't have grass in it and knew nothing about sowing uh, grass seed. I went out and bought this seed and I walked out onto the ground and I just tossed the seed out there and went, well, we'll have grass pretty soon. <laughs> well, if you know anything about growing grass, you know that there never was any grass there, at least not the first time. Um, why? Why? You've got to get that bow rake. You've got to rough up that dirt. uh, You've got to get that seed under the soil. You've got to water it just right. But that seed has got to go. You can't just lay it on top of the ground. It has to go under the soil. This is the whole idea of what Jesus is trying to teach, is that this is what's going to happen to me. Before I am resurrected, I have to die first. And it's no different today. It's a principle that works with money you invest money you put money in as a seed into something hoping that it will grow it will produce a harvest there'll be a return on your money this is how all retirement is built upon is i'm going to put this dollar in it's how prosperity gospel churches fleece people for their money sow your seed money uh, into into the church uh, should, you know, do you give to the church? Yes, but not as seed money so you can get something back. That's the mark of a prosperity gospel. You sow your seed so the Lord will give you sevenfold back. It's a, it's a get-rich scheme built around religious ideas. Um, it's a damnable gospel. It is not the gospel. People invest time in a gym. You go, you plant a seed by working out, and you actually the, the muscle breaks down. You, you're when you work out, you're tearing down the muscle so that nutrition in the days to come can grow it back, and make it a little stronger than it was before. What do recruits do in the military? They go in and they get broken down. This is what boot camp is. We're going we're gonna deconstruct this person so we can rebuild them into something strong, stronger and more useful. The very miracle of birth starts with a seed that is planted that results in new life. It's a principle that God set up in the entire universe. We sow and then we reap. And that's what Jesus is saying to his followers. I am going to die. I will be buried like a seed. And when he returns, those that die in faith will be resurrected and will be given a new body. That principle plays out all the way until the end of time. The physical body of every believer who ever died is a seed. It is this idea that Jesus is going to teach. And when I die, Jesus says, there's going to be much fruit. And then he gives us these things after he makes this word picture that are hard, it's hard for our broken, fallen nature to accept. They are paradoxes. The whole teachings of Jesus, there's a lot of paradoxes. The way up is down. The way to be exalted is to debase yourself. They come with a price and they come with a blessing. And Jesus says, if you love your life, you will lose your life. If you are selfish, focusing on yourself and not Christ, not forsaking all to follow him, then you will lose your life. But if you hate your life, and this is a hard saying for us, and I'm going to unpack that, what he means. But if you hate your life, then you gain eternal life. It's consistent with what the rest of the New Testament teaches. The idea of death is being applied to Jesus in one way. So Jesus is saying we all need to die. I'm going to die this way on a cross, but you all need to die too. You all, like I'm going to lose my life here in a few days, but then he teaches you also need to lose your life. It applies to us in a different way. We die to self. Uh, There are some people who may be called on to be martyrs, there are people being martyred all over the world today. Uh, this is not this is not an uncommon thing. People die for their faith. There are people this morning who are in prison today, right this minute. They are in prison on the other side of the world because they believe what we claim to believe. I read the uh, accounts a while back of a man who had spent some time in a, I believe was in a North Korean prison for his faith. It's conditions horrendous beyond description on what they do to those people simply because they are christian but if we don't ever die a martyr's death we must die to self we die to our desires our drives our will it all must die and be placed under the authority of christ we must submit our will to his sovereignty Jesus told his disciples in Matthew, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is telling people this who know the Roman government that we are under their control. This is how they put people to death who are criminals. You don't have to kill somebody to be crucified. We're going to crucify thieves. If you steal, we're going to nail them on a cross outside the city. That's what a cross means it was an instrument of execution and Jesus tells his followers if anyone comes after me you deny yourself you take up your cross and you follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what should a man give in return for his soul to love oneself is to elevate self to a place where it does not belong And that is idolatry. Jesus says you must hate your life. Jesus says in Luke, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now what does Jesus mean? jesus you just said i have to hate my wife and my children and my brothers and my sister i gotta hate everybody to be your follower well put some context in this you cannot read that with a 21st century american understanding Um, this is a semitic idiom which just means it's a jewish hebrew saying Um, this is backed up by people much smarter than me that says if you go even back to genesis this is how they talked it is not trying to show a degree of hatred. It is trying to convey, it's said for intentional exaggerated effect. He's saying it to make a point, right? Yes, I love my wife, I love my children, I love you all. We don't come here and say we're going to hate each other so we can follow Jesus. That's not what Jesus, Jesus is saying something using an idiom of his day to convey an idea. In comparison, maybe is a good way to say it. That you must love Jesus far beyond what you love anybody else. And just as Jesus' death opens the door for His glorification, so our death to self opens the door for the Father to honor us. What an idea. Jesus says if you do this, the Father will honor you. You're going to be honored by God. We don't get our satisfaction from self, but we find pleasure in the treasure of Christ. And in return, God is glorified in us. That's what Jesus is saying. I find my completion in Him, and then the Father honors me. He's glorified. He's, he's glorified. I make the God look great because I give my life to Jesus. And then there is this promise that continues to echo throughout the Gospel of John. If you hate your life in this world, you will have eternal life. Now how many times have we seen the idea of eternal life in John? If you've been tracking through this series now in chapter 12, you've seen the idea of eternal life comes up over and over and I mean over and over and over again. John is Drawing the stories of Jesus out. And he's not drawing all the stories because John finishes his book saying, I suppose if I would have written everything down about Jesus, that I suppose the world could not contain the books it would take to write that. That's so how John closes his letter. So John is, is drawing, he's intentionally picking stories to say, this is what Jesus was trying to teach us, is that you can have eternal life. The most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3.16, the idea of this is relating belief and faith to everlasting life eternal life this is what jesus is trying to teach us if anyone serves me the father will honor him and you will get eternal life but the way you do this is down there is a negative it's down that creates a positive up first it's down and then it's up verse 24 the grain of wheat dies it goes into the ground and then it brings forth much fruit Raising up. Verse 25, I hate my life in a godly way. That's down. It's a negative. I'm going to hate my life. I get eternal life. It's up. That's that's the positive. There's a downside and up. There's a death and there's a resurrection. Verse 26, I follow Jesus on the Calvary road that leads to my own death. It's a negative. It's down. What do I get? It's eternal life. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You live life paradoxically in contrast to what the world teaches. The world teaches me first. Jesus says, you die. Nothing in the Bible about self-esteem, self-worth. I die to self. I put this person under so that Christ may live within me. What can I do so the world can see me? That's, That's the culture, that's society. How can I get the most likes, or views or follows and i if i see the term social media influencer one more time i'm going to flip it's like we live in a in a generation in a culture where people have influence that didn't earn the right to have the platform or the influence the voice of the holy spirit is thundering to the church die to self die to pride and live unto christ And with that comes, with the Father honoring you, joy. The inexpressible joy that comes from treasuring Christ together with His people, that joy is precious and nothing, nothing satisfies that joy. Then the second section, and I'm going to skip over some verses in between there uh, for time's sake, but the second section in John 1244 through 50, which is how the chapter closes. And Jesus cries out and says, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. He's setting forth a, a very important principle here. My word will be your judge. It's no different for us today. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak and I know that his commandment is eternal life what I say therefore I say as the father has told me Jesus is on the road to his death and he's trying to get people to understand his identity so what he's doing here who is Jesus I'm going to go back to John 1 where we started Many sermons ago. In the beginning was the word. Now, John here is undoubtedly, I've never read anyone that disagrees with this. John is intentionally echoing what the reader would have known from Genesis 1. Genesis starts out in the beginning. So, if I were to write a book today, and I were to write a book, and I would have started out, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Everybody would know. You're playing off of Charles Dickens, probably plagiarizing Charles Dickens. Like You can't do that. Um, But if I were to do that, everybody would know. There'd be no doubt. You don't come up with that phrase without copying Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And so what you're doing from this point forward, we expect to see some parallels. Like you're intentionally telling the world that there's something here that relates back to that book. John is writing, in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And how does God do it? God does it through the the, the waters, this great abyss, this chaos, the, the deep, the unknown. The Spirit of God moves across the waters, and God says. It's the breath of God, the Word of God that comes out, God's Word and God's Spirit's at work. John is grabbing that And he's moving that into New Testament reality. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was, there's two things. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That is amazing. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word from the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we know he's talking about Jesus. Jesus becomes the Word incarnate. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. So now we've made the identity of Jesus the Word incarnate. And now we're saying that that Word is the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word changes. He's changing the identity to Son. Now we know we're talking about the Son of the Father, which is Jesus, full of grace and truth. And then the name of the Word in flesh, the Son of the Father, the name is revealed three verses later. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is trying to get us to understand who Jesus is. The divinity of Christ has got to be established from the very outset. Christ is God. He is fully God manifest in the flesh. He is the Old Testament Yahweh that has come among us and walking among us in the flesh. So from the beginning, there was a God who has always been and there was the Word of God and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the God-man. He is divine and He is human. He is God in flesh. The Word from the beginning in creation that became in human flesh this is why the writer of hebrews could say that god through christ created the worlds from the beginning it was through christ it's his identity it's through the the word of god he was god in all eternity and he was with god in all eternity <clears throat> hebrews 1 long ago at many times and in many places god spoke to our fathers by the prophets he's talking about the old testament but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. There's that verse. Through whom Christ, He, God, created the world. I love this verse. This is who Jesus is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and He is the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power How does all of this cosmos stay together? It stays together by the Word of God. It stays together because Jesus is keeping all of this together. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is, in verse 3, He's the exact imprint of His nature so let me, let me just geek out on you just for two seconds. When I prepare a sermon, when any preacher prepares a sermon, what they are doing is, it's we call it exegesis. Not Jesus is in Jesus Christ, it's Jesus with a G. Exegesis is what we do. And it simply means that we take the text and we extract the meaning from the text. I can't preach a sermon unless I first take the text and I preach, Spend the four or five hours or whatever it is it takes to extract the meaning, put it together, and present it to you. This is what the text is saying. This is the text revealed. It's exegesis. The opposite of that is eisegesis, which just means that we're going to impose meaning on the text, which we should not do. We should not grab meanings like our own ideas. and I'm going to put those on the text and make the text say what I want to say. No, let the text speak for itself. The word that we use for exegesis to say, I'm going to extract that, it is the same word in here, the same idea that Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus is the exegesis of God. God can feel in the Old Testament like He's spirit, I can't see Him, I can't... like He's a little bit abstract. So God reveals in flesh... He unpacks Himself in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus walks among us. And now we can read stories about Him. We can see Him speak to other people as a man and say, that is God. You want to know God rightly? Read the words of Jesus. Because that is who God is. That's God revealed among His people. He is the exact imprint of his nature. It is through Jesus the world was created. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact expression of who God is. This is why Jesus can say, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me has seen him who sent me. Don Carson One of my favorite commentators, writers, he writes, And so closely is the Son, the Word, identified with the Father, that to see Jesus is to see the Father who sent Him. I'm not teaching that Jesus is the Father. He is the Son, but the identification is so close that Jesus can make that statement. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact expression in flesh of God. So if you have faith in Jesus, you also have faith in the one who sent him. And oh, that our lives would have a singular purpose to have faith in Christ and to know him better every day. Jesus says in verse 46, I have come into the world as light, that so that whoever believes in me may not remain in Darkness. We are born in darkness. I've I've met self-righteous people who I think think they were born in light, but they weren't. We were all born in darkness. David said, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Born in darkness into the light. Peter says in 1 Peter, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are called out of darkness into the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would write in Ephesians, You who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, by grace have you been saved. We were dead in sin. Dead people don't live again unless there is a catalyst, an agent, something that happens to bring that dead person back to life. That's why the greatest miracle ever to happen is not the raising of the dead, the opening of deaf ears, the opening of blind eyes, uh, people getting out of wheelchairs. Believe in all that, it's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is a dead person spiritually coming to life. We call it regeneration. We call it the new birth. call it justification. call it being born again. All the same thing. I was dead and now I come to new life. The, what we talk about being born again in John 3, more accurately from what's being said in that verse is being born from above. I am being born from above this time. I had an earthly birth. My second birth is a birth from heaven. It is the greatest miracle. We were dead in sin and dead people don't live again unless there is a miracle of life given by God. He made us alive in Christ, Paul says. It was God who willed it by His grace. He raised us up in Christ. He did the work. I can't save myself. This is why a person could live a pure, clean, moral life. You could could live as clean and as moral as you possibly could for the rest of your life and still not be saved. Because that's not what saves us. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. How does this happen? Verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again, John is hammering the idea over and over and over, the belief in Christ. Read His Word, believe His Word and everything in it without doubt or hesitation. Like, I hope we all read everything else outside the Bible with a degree of skepticism. You have to. You cannot just assume and take everything um, on its own. Why? Because people are infallible. They write bad things. I've never heard a preacher in my life that I agreed 100% of what he said. I have no expectation that you hear anything in a sermon, in one sermon and agree with everything I said. I I have no expectation of that. Because why? We're filtering it, we're we're testing it. But when I open up his word, rightly understood, rightly interpreted, rightly understood and, and believed. But when I read his word, we must believe everything in it without doubt or hesitation. Why? It's the Word of God. It's an inerrant. It's infallible. Now, people do come away with bad understandings of, of Scripture. That happens all the time, but I'm saying the rightly divided word of truth. There's a saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's like, wrong. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No. Pull out that middle part. It doesn't matter what I believe about it. God said it, and that settles it. I believe what I want to believe. Maybe more rightly, it should be God said it, that settles it, and I believe it. Because my belief does not determine the fidelity of the Word of God. It is forever settled in heaven. It is a lamp. It is a light. The Word of God, the writer of Hebrews said, the Word of God is a sharper than any two-edged sword it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart and we have the word in text and we have the word inside of us through his holy spirit so i read these last four verses again and it's because the last four verses in john They're the last words of Jesus' public ministry. Now Jesus is going to have a lot more to say. He's going to go to the Last Supper. He's going to talk to His disciples. He's going to be on trial. He's going to pray the high priestly prayer. One of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible is John 17. The Bible doesn't call it the high priestly prayer, but that's what it's been dubbed. It is Jesus' prayer that's incredible. It's just a chapter of him praying like wouldn't you like to hear Jesus pray like Jesus goes out in the wilderness like wouldn't you like to hear him pray well you can in John 17 that's what it is you get like the disciples said Jesus teach us how to pray wouldn't you is there anybody better to listen to pray than Jesus It's like if you want to know how to pray maybe see how Jesus did it and John 17 is just a prayer it's incredible. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to approach that in the coming weeks because it's it's life-changing. But these last four verses are the final words in his public ministry. Everything else that he does will be in private settings. So what does Jesus close his public ministry with? If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus closes his public ministry, By emphasizing who He is, I am sent from the Father and I speak what He gave me to speak. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world who takes away the sin of the world. And as I have said from the beginning, if we can accomplish two things in this setting, Number one, that is for us to be worshipers. And number two, it's to be disciples of Jesus Christ. If you can accomplish those two things in your life, there's not really a whole lot else that matters. Because the implications of what will happen in the rest of your life, family, finances, relations, career, all of those things that matter, they're not insignificant. They're very important. We spend most of our lives focused on those things. And that's never going to change. The the rest of our lives, the the bulk of our time will be focused on those areas. But what gets those areas right is by becoming a worshiper of God and a disciple of Jesus. And I've seen a lot of church mission statements that are very singular and that we exist to make disciples of Jesus. And I think that's right, but I think it's incomplete. Because unless there is a worship element in there, a disciple of jesus can become one-dimensional i say that because there are people who are disciples of i've used this example before but i think it works there's people who are disciples of buddha and buddha is not the same as muhammad or or, or allah it's, it's not the same buddha is not considered this massive divine figure there is some element of devotion there but buddha is not Maybe he's semi-divine. I'm not an expert at all in that. But I do know he's not considered a deity. That's the word. Buddha is not a deity. So it's not that they worship Buddha as the creator of the universe. It's not that. It's that they are disciples and devotees of his teachings of someone who lived long ago. The difference with Christianity is... We are disciples and Christ followers of Jesus who also lived long ago, 2,000 years ago. But this is not a 2,000, we're not attached to something that's 2,000 years old. One, Jesus resurrected from the dead and is alive today. It's like, what is Jesus doing right now? I've wondered that question. Like, right now, Jesus is there. What's he doing? It's like, well, the Bible tells us he's interceding for us. That's what he's doing he is interceding for his people and two jesus is with us today that's what makes christianity different than islam than buddhism than any other religion is that yes we believe our messiah did rise again but he sent his holy spirit that's what his holy spirit is it is sent from god it is sent from christ it's a core tenet of christianity the holy spirit is spirated it issues forth from god from christ into his people the spirit of christ is within us today so it makes it a present reality you have jesus within you i don't care how you feel i don't give a flip about your emotional state it's irrelevant christ is in you whether you feel good whether you feel like it doesn't matter your emotions are irrelevant on the reality that christ is in me christ is with me he dwells inside of me when i go to target jesus goes to target through the power of his spirit because i am the temple this is the idea that paul's trying to drive home he says what do you not know that you are the temple of the holy spirit the whole idea of the old testament was it was a John Piper describes it this way. In the Old Testament, it's a come-and-see religion. We build this multi-billion-dollar temple. Solomon's temple is billions of dollars in what it would have cost to have constructed it in today's dollars. And you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and once a year the manifest presence of God comes, but the temple is where God meets man. It's where heaven meets earth. This is what the Garden of Eden is. The Garden of Eden is a temple. All temples symbols, it's all temple language. It's where heaven comes to meet earth. The tabernacle in the wilderness that becomes Solomon's temple. It's where heaven comes to meet earth. It's where God meets his people. But walk out the temple and walk 30 feet that way. God's not there, he's in the temple. The other half of that saying is that the Old Testament was a come and see religion, the New Testament is a go-and-tell religion, that Christianity has no geographic center. I'd like to see Jerusalem someday for the history element of it, but God's not in Jerusalem anymore. There's nothing, there is nothing sacred going on in Jerusalem than is in Wiley, Texas. God is just as manifested here today in us. And Paul says all of that temple stuff that's going on in the Old Testament, that's what you are now. Your body became the temple, the living place where the Holy Spirit, the presence of God comes down and meets us. And he travels. It's a traveling. It goes back to the, to the days of Moses, where the, t- the tabernacle traveled with the people of God. The temple, Solomon's temple, and the second temple, it becomes a static, fixed place in Jerusalem that people have to go to. But when the children of Israel are wandering in the, in the tabernacle, the presence of God goes with the, with the people, and it's no different. Now the presence of God goes with us today. That's why I say don't care, irrelevant, how you feel, your emotional state, your state of mind, happy, sad, careless, does not change the reality God is in you. God is with you. That's the reality. And a mark of Christian maturity, and this is a danger when church becomes emotionalism, where it becomes driven by emotion or feeling, is that that feeling is not always there. So I can walk into a service where I feel God It's like God's with me, and I get out on a Tuesday afternoon, and hell on earth is breaking loose. I go, where's God? God is exactly the same place that he was in that church service, inside you. It's a reality. And a mark of Christian maturity is saying, I don't trust my feelings, I trust my faith. It's one way of saying God's got this. He's in the driver's seat. It's like... Well, people make fun of it. Who was it? Carrie Underwood had the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, you know. Um, there's a video you can find on YouTube of the song going and ladies driving down the road singing Jesus Take the Wheel. And with her window down, all of a sudden, Jesus kind of floats up in there and comes in and takes over the wheel. And we, we laugh at that, but it's like, no, that's right. Jesus, you need to take the wheel. I'll be over here in the passenger seat, like you used to see those bumper stickers. God is my co pilot. Like, oh man, please, no. I do not want God as my co pilot. I want God as first captain, first chair, in control, flying this plane, guiding this ship. You're in control. I'm, I'm along for the ride. I'm going to go with you wherever you leave me, wherever you lead me. That is the reality of what Jesus is trying to communicate today. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Lamb of God slain. We put all our faith, trust, and confidence in Him into a God who today we worship. So we're worshipers and we're disciples, adherents, followers of the teachings of Christ. But that only happens through the empowerment of His Holy Spirit that is within us. So how does that play out in in day to day? I would encourage you Take advantage, and I mean that in a good way. Take advantage in a positive way of the reality that Christ is with you at all times. Meaning that you can pray to Him and ask of Him anything at all times. And He is within you. He is traveling with you. He does not leave you. He does not go in and out on a turnstile door based on what kind of day you're having. He took up residence in you. And he is there to stay. Let's stand. Father, your word this morning has went forth. We know that because we're Bible people, we believe this book, we trust this book. So we believe that we are the temple of your Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us those who have been justified, uh, born again, born from above. We have your Spirit. So I ask you this morning that throughout the week as we live our lives that we would learn to talk to you, to listen to that still small voice that we know so well and along with uh, you speaking to us through your Spirit that we know that whatever you say to us will always align with your Word so we pray, Lord, that we would just be Bible people that would hear from heaven through the scriptures. Lord, we're trying to navigate some really difficult times in our world that uh, affect our everyday lives. The things that are going on has, has had an effect on our lives every day and will continue to do so. So we ask you that you would grant us the wisdom uh, to live faithfully and to live as the people of God as a people who are witnesses uh, in these troubling times, Lord, grant us enduring faith that would sustain us. Lord, give us direction. I've prayed for wisdom several times today, and I'll continue to do so to grant us wisdom, Lord, to know what to say and how to speak and how to act and how to make good choices today in this world, decisions that would glorify you. Help us to be lights and witnesses in this world And go with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.